Isaiah chapter 53. Reading out of the English Standard Version. When you got it, let me know. Amen. Verse 1, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let's pray. Jesus ask for a blessing to be added to the reading of your word, that you would grant illumination into the Holy Scriptures, the text that we're walking through this afternoon. Help us to understand it, to apply it, to be edified by it, to learn from it, but most importantly, to apply it to our lives and make change, to live right, and to give you the worship that you're due. Help us to fully grasp the depths of your sacrifice in your resurrection so that it might change the way we think, move, and live. And we'll be mindful, God, to give your name all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today I want to talk about Jesus being worthy of faith. I want to explain how we have a savior that is worth believing in. Because it's Resurrection Sunday, the tendency that I have and every other pastor who's preaching this morning, the tendency is to take the story of Jesus and to begin with the resurrection and then leave. And part of that is because of the holiday it is, but the other aspect is because 
I think is there's something in human nature that uh, wants to just kind of skip and get to the good part <laughs> where the good guy wins, you know, when it all work out. <clears throat> that's just that's just the natural tendency. We when the movies we watch, like we just had that mentality. We just want to get to the part where everything is okay. The good guy wins. He's victorious, and then we pack it up and go home. But but the problem we have is, is that's not how the New Testament describes Jesus' life. Like, it doesn't start with the resurrection. There's a story there. There's a backdrop. There, there's context. There's, there's something. That they, there are events that are significant that led all the way up into this resurrection event. So if you skip all of those and just go straight to the resurrection, then it pulls away some of the power and some of the weight out of the resurrection narrative. So we have to kind of go back and explain what happened before the resurrection, before we even get to the resurrection, because Jesus is not just the, the risen Lord. He's also the suffering servant. But it's hard for us to talk about that because we don't like human nature. We repels that like that whole concept of suffering is something that we don't like talking about. But when we read the scripture, and when we read specifically the life of Christ is written there for a reason. By definition, a resurrection is something, uh, it's an event in which something that is dead comes back to life. Okay, death is not intended to be a pleasant event. So that means that even in Jesus' life, in order for there to be a resurrection, there must have been a death, which means the suffering must precede the victory. And that goes for everybody in this room, everybody who names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand that suffering is a part of being a disciple of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by suffering? I'm not talking about the general things that happen to all humanity. I'm talking about the specific suffering that is connected to your affiliation with and your association with Jesus. Suffering that would not have happened had you not known Christ. For example, in extreme cases, which we see in various countries over the world right now, being martyred for the faith, being thrown in prison for the faith, that's the type of suffering I'm talking about. But it doesn't only require that. There are other aspects of suffering that are maybe more minor, but they're still suffering. Being ridiculed, being skipped over at a job, being ignored by family members, all due to your affiliation with the Lord Jesus, that's suffering for Christ. Enduring spiritual attacks, not just the general ones, but y'all know those carefully plotted out ones that happen at the right time? Where as soon as you get to doing everything that God calls you to do, all hell breaks loose in your life, that's suffering for the sake of the gospel, these are demonic and satanic attacks that happen to deter us from the mission. This is a part of the Christian experience. It is a part of our allotment, and we must accept it for what it is. So before we talk about the resurrection, I want to talk about the suffering servant. And I want to explain that he is a savior that's worth our faith no matter what we go through and experience in life. The book of Isaiah, the prophet, is writing to a bunch of disobedient Israelites who are about to be on their way into exile. He is about to prophesy their captivity to the Babylonians, which was fulfilled in 586 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar went up in there and tore the place up. You read more about it in the book of Daniel and, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, you know, thrown into the fire. All of that happened 
after they were exiled in Babylon. So Isaiah is prophesying about this, but he wants to give them some hope and he wants to explain to them that God is going to raise up a messianic figure, a Messiah, a savior. And then he's going to grieve at the fact that even the Jewish people didn't recognize him. Here's what he says in verse one. He says, who has believed our message? Who has believed what he has heard from us? Notice the pronoun is in the plural. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? The us there is specifically referring to the nation of Israel, probably even more especially believing Israel. So he's, he's talking about the nation because he's an Israelite and he's sending a message, message out to the rest of the nation of Israel. And he's saying, who has believed what he has heard from us? So the us is most likely referring to the remnant within Israel, believing Israel. And he's sending a message out to the nation as a whole and largely those who have not been walking in obedience and who are worshiping idols. And he's saying, who has believed what he has heard from us? But Scott Scholars believe that there is something more going on with this question where he's not just saying a basic question, who has believed, but he's using it the way we would say, um, y'all know when something happened and we'd be like, man, you won't believe what happened. That's probably how, what Isaiah is saying. He's like, you, who has believed? What I'm about to tell you is so remarkable. Who would believe this? He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? Then he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord, Yahweh, been revealed? What does he mean, the arm of the Lord? This is what we call an anthropomorphism. The word anthros is Greek from where we get our English word man. Morphe means it speaks of the nature or the essence of a thing. So an anthropomorphism in biblical language is when uh, human attributes are ascribed to a deity. So, so, so when God or any type of divine figure is described using human characteristics or attributes, we call that an anthropomorphism. So when it says that, uh, uh, that God has an arm, who, who has, who has uh, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, the arm is not meant to be taken literally because God is spirit. He doesn't have bones and ligaments and flesh and cartilage and joints and any of that, right? He doesn't have an elbow, a rotator cup, a, a shoulder. He doesn't have a literal arm. It's, it's an anthropomorphism. We see it elsewhere in scripture. It talks about uh, in the book of Leviticus, the, the Israelites would sacrifice on the altar their offerings. And, and it says that the smoke would ascend to God as a soothing aroma to his nostrils. Okay, he doesn't really have a nose. He's spear, right? That's an anthropomorphism, right? So, so these are, are, are ways in which God is being described, but the metaphor or the simile is not supposed to be taken literally. It's supposed to communicate something about God. So what does Isaiah mean when he say the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord represents his work. It's what he does, specifically and more commonly, either his acts of judgment or his acts of salvation. For example, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, uh, the Israelites are in Egypt in bondage and slavery, and God raises up Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to go to the children of Israel, and I want you to tell them that God is going to deliver you with an outstretched arm. And then what happened after that? He put that staff in Moses' hand. Put it on the ground. It's a snake. Throw it in the sea. The sea becomes blood. Bring darkness all over the face of the land. Raise frogs up from the city so that Pharaoh would repent. And then ultimately, what did he do? He dried up the sea and split it so that the Israelites were able to walk through on dry ground. That's the arm of the Lord. Whenever God's work is doing something redemptive, we call that the what? 
the arm of the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. Would you believe this, Israel? And to whom has the work, the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now he's asking another rhetorical question. He's saying, whom has God revealed his redemptive plan to? He says, the message is remarkable. Now, who did God reveal it to? He's talking about Israel. What does this tell us? Tells us that faith and revelation is needed to follow the Lord. If there is not revelation, there can be no belief. That's why you see him connected. Who has believed and whom has the Lord revealed it to? That's Old Testament, right? Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, nobody knows the son except the father, and nobody knows the father except the son, and to all whom the father chooses to reveal himself to. There's a revelation that must take place, and if you're saved, you've experienced this whether you know it or not. It's the moment you're reading the word or you heard the evangelist say something or you heard the preacher preach or maybe you was in the room by yourself, but it's that moment when the scales fell from your eyes. And you knew that this book was true and that Jesus was Lord. Paul called that the doctrine of regeneration. First John calls it being born anew. Jesus called it being born again. But it's that moment where the scales fall from our eyes, where the blindfold is removed, and we can see the light of the gospel. Revelation is taking place. We need it in order to believe. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Speaking of this future Messiah who we know to be Christ, it says he grew up before him, talking about before the Lord, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Dry like my throat right now, so I'm about to sip this water. (laughs) Y'all know I got a joke just because it's Resurrection Sunday. don't mean I ain't got no joke. I keep a jokey joke. Notice the simile there for my people who are preachers and teachers training. You should pick up on that. He says he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That means that the author is using a simile to try to teach us something. So when you're reading the Bible, you don't want to just skip over a simile because the simile is a comparison using like or ask. The comparison is supposed to teach us something about God, right? So he says he grew up like this, this, this young plant and like this root out of dry ground just Imagine, just picture the imagery in your head. He says, a young plant. That means that when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's not everything that he's called to be. As God, of course he is. But as man, the scripture says he grew up. In stature, it says he grew in favor and wisdom with man. Then he says, like a root out of dry ground. So not only is the plant young, which means he ain't just come on the scene with everything that needs to be there. He had to grow. He also says the plant was like it came out of dry ground. Now, I don't know much about gardening. (laughs) But you need some moisture in that soil. That dirt can't be dry. It needs to be a well-soiled surface in order to produce a plant. 
But it says Jesus grew up like a young plant, not like a large cedar tree. He grew up with these humble beginnings. And then he says it was like a plant that came out of dry ground. What does that mean? He, he's coming from a background that is not conducive for success. Y'all don't want to talk about it. He, it's not a well-soiled ground. He ain't have nothing handed to him. He had to work for what he got and what he did. He says the ground was dry, meaning that everything about this ground says no growth will happen here. He's from Nazareth, not Jerusalem. Herod tried to kill him upon his birth, not be his friend. The scripture says when he was born, his parents had to sacrifice a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, to the untrained eye, it's like, well, what's the big deal? But you go to Leviticus chapter 12, it says that when a child is born, a lamb should be sacrificed. But if the mother can't afford it, so that means that he's growing up in some sense of poverty here where he don't have everything he needs to succeed in life. So he's telling us this about Christ. Why? To encourage us that just because we may have a background that is not conducive for success don't mean we just give up. Don't mean we say, God, why you ain't put me in a better family? If Jesus was able to succeed in spite of it, what's our excuse? Some of us come from backgrounds where you have one parent in the home instead of two. Some people come from a background where you weren't born in Pepper Pike, you was born on Quincy. Some people might come from a background you had some abuse in you, you saw some things you shouldn't have seen as a kid. That's okay. God puts you in a situation and he says, I could use that. That could be a plant. I don't need moist ground. I could use that. We ain't got no reason to be ashamed of our background, where we come from. Our back against the wall, against all eyes, that should give us a reason to glorify Christ. The scripture says he used the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Jesus is a savior worthy of our faith because he came out like many of us. He ain't have it all put together around him. Like a root out of parched ground. Look at what it says. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. No form or majesty. What does the prophet mean? He's trying to compare Jesus, the true king, to all the other Israelite kings or Gentile kings that came before him, whether they were righteous or unrighteous. He says he had no form or majesty. The Bible says about King Solomon that when he came on the scene, he was decked out. I mean, the boy was sharp. Splendid uh, splendid attire, uh, glowing gold, uh, jewelry. The Bible says he was decked out from head to toe. In fact, Jesus says, I believe it's in Luke 6 or maybe Matthew 6, he says that uh, the only thing that's clothed more miraculously and more splendidly than King Solomon is how God does nature. He says that's the only thing that compare with Solomon. Jesus, God said that. If God said you fresh, you already know you got something going on. <laughs> True. The kings would dress themselves in royal attire. So he says, Jesus comes on the scene. He doesn't have this royal attire. He, he walk in the dirt roads of Israel in his sandals like everybody else. Not only that, 
He says he had no former majesty that we would look at him and say, wow, look at his outfit. He also says he had no beauty that we should desire him. What is Isaiah getting at? Remember, Isaiah is talking to Israel primarily, so he knows that they understand the Hebrew Bible. So when they hear no beauty, that wait a minute, the king, the Messiah, doesn't have any beauty that we would be attracted to him? The Bible says that King Solomon was tall and handsome. I'm saying not King Solomon, King Saul was tall and handsome. The Bible says that King David was, was, was handsome with red skin and beautiful eyes. But he's saying, you're, you're telling me that the Davidic king is not going to be this attractive guy with the muscles and the, the unique looks and the, all the great features? Which is so ironic because all the pictures we paint of him, we got him looking like Fabio. <laughs> You know, Google it. You don't know who Fabio is. My kid's in the room. They got him with a six-pack and all this stuff. There's one with him with dreads, too. Don't act like y'all ain't since. Some of y'all got him in your house. <laughs> I seen it. I came over. <laughs> Says there's no beauty about him. There, there, there's nothing. There's nothing outwardly about his appearance that would say, I want to follow him. Which means that if you follow him anyway, that means you're doing it for the right reasons. Because there's nothing else. There's nothing external. He's the root out of dry ground. Yeah, He's not some super handsome guy. He doesn't have royal, royal attire. So if you're following him anyway, that means you must really be in love with him. Now, when I read this, here's what I thought to myself. If Jesus, our senior leader, the savior of the world, comes on the scene, not worried about his physical appearance, why is it that so many people who are in my position, pastors and bishops and leaders, got to go out of their way to get the most expensive expensive outfit, Oh, I got to look good for the camera. I got to look good for the TV. Make sure you get this shot. Make sure you get my left side, my better side. And you see it all the time. Got to have the most expensive clothes. And I'm not saying we're supposed to go around neglecting our appearance. Don't give them. This ain't no cult, okay? Don't get me wrong. This ain't got to go around looking busted on purpose or nothing like that. It's not what I'm saying. <laughs> not what I'm saying. But going out your way. To, to get people to look at you. And I'm, I'm specifically talking to leaders. Anybody in this room, you got pastoral aspirations, preaching aspirations, where you're going to be up on this stage, please hear me on this. Do not go out of your way trying to impress people with your appearance, man. That's not why God called us to be leaders. Jesus came on the scene. He's like, I'm not worried about none of that. Now, what's the difference between him, Solomon, Saul, David, and the rest of them? All of them failed and fell victim to this stuff. Jesus didn't. All those things do is detract you from the mission. Jesus comes on the scene. He's like, give me my robe like the rest of my brothers. And a nice pair of sandals. We'd be good. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and esteemed, and we esteemed him not. Self-explanatory, those negative words, rejected, despised, 
not esteeming him. What does that tell us uh, about the Messiah? People rejected him. People didn't want to have anything to do with him. Why? Because he didn't come on the scene looking like Solomon. Remember, he's the root out of dry ground. That's not what the people wanted. He's rejected by men. He came into his own and his own knew I'm not. The Bible says his own brothers, his own sisters rejected him. His own people, his own ethnic group, his own nation. He's rejected and despised, which many of us have heard that before. But but here's the part that we want to get from this. And notice it also says he was a man of sorrows. Okay, there's nothing in the Bible that says if you're a Christian, you got to be happy every day. <laughs> okay, that, that, that is not a script. That is a, to tell people that is abusive. You got to be happy every day. Yes, God promised to give us peace. Yes, God promises to give us joy based on what he's done for us and things of that sort. But this whole idea that every day you're going to have a smile on your face, you're always going to feel good, I don't, I don't think that's what the scripture teaches. Jesus was a man acquainted with sorrows. He's probably seeing the things going on in his, in his neighborhood, the unbelief, the demonic oppression, and everything that's happening. And he's feeling the grief. He's feeling the weight of it. He says men hid their faces from him and rejected him and esteemed him not. So since Jesus is one who was despised and rejected by men, why is that something we're so afraid of experiencing ourselves? Let's sit on that for a minute. Why is it such a fear for us to be rejected by people? Whenever I um, ask people, you know, when it comes to evangelism, it's like, what's your biggest What's your biggest hindrance to you sharing your faith? You hear different things, but the two, the two major ones I hear, one is, man, I feel like I don't know enough Bible, so if somebody say something, I don't know what I'll say back. To which I respond and say, God didn't call you to argue. He called you to preach the gospel. Tell people what you know. If you don't have the questions, then say, I don't have, I mean, you don't have the answers. Just say you don't have the answers. On to the next one. But the chief one that I always hear is, I am afraid of being rejected. I don't want somebody to close the door on my face. I don't want anybody to say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want anybody to say, man, why you believe this stuff is stupid? But I'm looking at Christ, and he's this man who was rejected. But we work so hard to be approved by people. We choose careers. What school we going to go to? Even down to the clothes we wear. To impress people. We even call it dressing to. <laughs> That's just, it's like we have this natural desire to seek approval from other people. Imagine how the gospel narrative ends if Jesus is living for the approval of all his peers. No way he's finishing that mission if he's doing that. No way. But, but we, on the other hand, we live for people. We live to hear a well done. What, what's, the, uh, what's the saying? They say um, if you live for people's uh, compliments, you, you die by their criticism. That's one of the only IG memes I actually agree with. <laughs> In the million I've seen. That's the one that finally said, I'm going to save this and screenshot that one. It's true. Listen, that's what I'll listen, I'll listen, listen. We're going to stay here for a minute. If there's anything I have learned <laughs> in my uh, 10, 15, how long has it been, 2009, 20, 15 years of being a minister, in my seven-plus years of being a pastor, 
is I'm an individual who my love language is words of affirmation. That's probably my top one. I love it when people give me a compliment. That's real, a real compliment, not like the fake ones, but, you know, like a real compliment that a person that actually means. You typically can recognize that, right? So I love that. I, lo I love to know that I did a good job on something. Whatever it could be, it could be taking out the trash. I like to know that I took out that trash and tied that tie in a way that, like, like I love a good word of affirmation, okay? Shout out to my word of affirmation people in the room. I love it and I appreciate it. But what I learned early on in my preaching ministry, and I learned this early, like third sermon I learned it. I was like 24, okay? I learned that if you get ex too excited about them applauses during the message, it's going to affect how you preach, man. Because when I preach my first sermon, jokers flying off the ceiling fans, man. <laughs> Y'all should have been. I mean, it was, you know, you would have thought, you would have thought Jake's was up in there. You know, it was crazy up in there, right? My first sermon, right? Then I preached my third sermon. They weren't talking to your boy. <laughs> they weren't saying nothing. My little feelings was hurt. My little confidence was shot. I got the shaking and stuff up here. I'm telling y'all the truth of what happened. But what God was doing early was humbling me. Because after that first, all it took was one sermon of good job, preacher man, for my pride to be on 12 after that day, right? God was like, let me teach this boy now. <laughs> Do not live for that stuff. So to this day, I carry that lesson with me. So when you guys come to me, you're like, man, Brian, good work. It blesses me. It really touches me because it lets me know that I'm, I'm uh, serving people and fulfilling my ministry and I've been a blessing in your life. But I can't live by that. Because what's going to happen when I make you mad one day? <laughs> what's going to happen when I get on your nerves? What's going to happen when the sermon ain't hitting like it usually is or whatever? You know, Then my little feelings are going to be hurt again. So I got to recognize, low, I cannot live for men's approval. The only approval that should matter to me and to you is the approval from God that you are pleasing and obeying him. Now, before we move to the next point, that don't mean you go around with this attitude. I don't care what nobody thinks. You ain't going to do that and put that on me. No, 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 no. What people think matters, okay? If one person say you got an attitude, okay, maybe they having a bad day. But if five people say you got a bad attitude, you need to listen to what folk is saying about you, okay? Next point. We esteem him not, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, some of your translations may uh, translate verse 4 as surely he has borne our sicknesses or diseases. Anybody's translation say that? Okay, everybody got an ESV. Okay. Some of the translations are different, but it, 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 it's not a mistranslation. The word in Hebrew can be semi-ambiguous without getting too technical, but that word can be translated either way, but most likely the meaning here is sicknesses and what does sickness typically bring to people? Grief and sorrow, right? So they, they, they don't, don't be confused by that part. So it says that Jesus bore our grief and our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now there's a lot going on there. What does all this mean? Well, in what sense, verse 4, 
has Jesus borne our sicknesses or our griefs? That's really the question here. Here's how this is sometimes taught. When Jesus was on the cross, he took literally all our sicknesses on his back. Because of that, we can get to verse 5 where it says, by his stripes we are healed, and we can claim and guarantee divine healing without any type of disclaimer. All right, that's not what this scripture means. Obviously, it can't mean that, because what are we going to do with all these sick people in the Bible who love God? So we know just based on logic, that doesn't work. But does that mean that sickness is totally out of view? Mm-mm. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What's so interesting is in the book of Matthew, Matthew quotes this verse when Jesus is healing people. When Jesus is casting out demons and healing people of their sicknesses and healing Peter's mother-in-law, Matthew says this has happened to fulfill what was written by the prophet. Surely he has carried our diseases. So he's specifically talking about sickness there. But is he primarily talking about sickness? Look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, transgressions and iniquities are salvific terms, meaning that these are words that are used to speak of salvation. Iniquities, transgressions, that's not talking about physical incapacities or sicknesses, right? So it doesn't say Jesus was pierced for our sicknesses. It says he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. What does this mean? In the biblical writer's mind, all sickness comes as a result of sin. Without sin, there's no sickness. Sin is the root of disease. We don't have any disease in the Bible until after Genesis chapter 3. Therefore, scholars call this what is called a metonymy. A metonymy is when the author uses a word and the word is talking about the result, but it's really trying to teach you about the root of something. So if I look at my man right there, and I say, Kari, uh, you have the crown. Okay, that's like a secondary thing. What I'm really trying to say is he's the king. The crown is just representative of the core thing, which is the king. So when he's talking about carrying our sicknesses and diseases and by stripes we are healed, what he's saying is that the root cause of our sickness was the sin, therefore Jesus came to be crushed for that. But since he was crushed for our sins, What does that mean about our health? Well, if you talk to your neighborhood word faith preacher on TBN, they're going to say, well, you already healed. All you got to do is believe it by faith. But what the text really means is since Jesus came to deal with the root of our sickness, he's made provision for healing. He's given us access to divine healing. Therefore, in James 5, he says, if anyone be among you sick, let him pray. Let him call for the elders of the church, anointing him with oil when the prayer offered in faith will raise up the sick person. These aren't just things that are just thrown out there for fun. He's saying that through Christ's death, provision has been made for divine healing. And without his atonement, there would have been no opportunity for this. So he's crushed for our iniquities, pierced through. Notice the word pierced. 
which speaks of how Jesus was pierced in his side for us on the cross. Let's look at the, the, the preciseness of the prophecy. Verse 6, and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he says, like sheep, we've gone astray. But notice what he says, we have turned everyone to his own way. Here's what we need to know about sheep when they go astray. They don't just do something neutral. If you don't follow Jesus as his sheep, there's only one thing left for you to do, what you want to do. Your own way. Everybody, he says, all of us was doing what was right in our own mind. But look at what he says verse uh, at the end of verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he opened not his mouth. What does all of this mean? He's saying, look, man, when Jesus was on the cross, All our transgressions, all of our sins, all of our evil thoughts, all of our evil actions, past, present, and future, was put on his back. This is what we call penal substitutionary atonement. It means that Christ paid the penalty as a substitute in our place. It means that everything that Jesus is experiencing in his life, the the rejecting by his own people, the wrath of God, the anger, the physical pain, the affliction, the spitting on the face, the thorn crown, he's saying all of that is what every human being deserves. But it says that God, Yahweh, put all of that iniquity on him. People say, How is that sufficient to save us from hell? Well, here's why. The Bible says that hell is the wrath of God, poured out unmixed, according to Revelation chapter 14. The scripture says that Jesus took the wrath of God on his shoulders. Yeah, but he only suffered for six hours. Hell is supposed to last in eternity. Yeah, but you got to ask the question, who suffered for six hours? An eternal God who became man. But but, but why would God punish him and then say anybody who doesn't believe in him would have to spend an eternity in hell when when they only live maybe 40 years of ungodliness? Well, here's why. (laughs) Because you've committed sins against an eternal God who's infinite. Therefore, the consequences must be eternal and infinite. Furthermore, here's another thing we miss. We assume that when people go to hell, they stop sinning. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say in Revelation that as men were enduring the wrath of God in the last days, they wagged their fists at God and cursed him. Just because you go to hell don't mean you love Jesus now. Your hatred remains. Therefore, the punishment remains. So when Jesus is bearing the wrath of God on the cross, he understands that he's paying an eternal consequence. So the hell that we would have gotten for our fornication and our adultery and our drunkenness and our drug usage and our alcohol abuse and our pride and our idolatry and our gluttony and our bad attitude and our gossiping and our backbiting and our hatred, Jesus bears it all in our place. And he's put on trial. He's not questioned. I mean, he's questioned, but he's silent. He doesn't try to defend himself. Very little did he say. 
We're almost done. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, which speaks of him being imprisoned and uh, locked in chains. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? That's another rhetorical question. What Isaiah is saying that he's looking forward to the future. And he's saying the bulk of the people who saw Jesus suffer didn't understand that he was suffering for them. <laughs> That's why they killed him. He, they, they thought that, that he was suffering for his own wrongdoing. And he's like, no, we didn't even understand that he was our substitute. And he's mourning over it. But look at what it says in verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Look at how clear and accurate the prophetic word is. He says that Jesus, when he died, they assigned him a grave with who? The wicked. And then when Jesus is on the cross, he's nailed in between who? Two wicked thieves. Isaiah is looking forth to that, and he's like, they treated him like a criminal. You got a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right, and he's in the middle, and they assigned the righteous man who had no violence a grave with wicked people. When he was dying for the people who was putting him to death. But look at what it says after that. It also says he was with a rich man in his death. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. What is Isaiah talking about there? Look at what it says in, 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 in the New Testament. When it was evening, there came a what? A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. Uh-oh. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which had been cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went, tomb and went away. Isaiah looked all the way through the corridors of history. And not only predicted what was going to happen to Jesus, but saw Joseph and how God was going to use Joseph even in the burial process. So when he says he was with the rich in his death, he's talking about how Joseph didn't want Jesus to be disgraced and using a used pre-owned tomb. But he spent his money to buy Jesus a new tomb because he felt he was worth it. And this man, the, the prophet saw it. This is how we know the scriptures are accurate. How could he have possibly known that? So even though Jesus dies this disgraceful death, God in his grace says, but I'm going to have you something nice in your tomb. You, I'm not even going to put you in a tomb like everybody else. What does this mean for us? What, what, what does Christ's resurrection ultimately mean for us? Last year, I gave an application, and I said that it's unfortunate that on Resurrection Sunday, we make it all about coming to, to the church service only. But when you read the New Testament, the resurrection service was actually about going out and telling people that the resurrection happened. That was my big takeaway last week. But here's my takeaway this week. What is the relevance of the resurrection for our lives practically? Let me get Romans 6 on the screen. If you don't get anything else, leave with this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have 
died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? No, it's just, it's probably not the traditional <laughs> resurrection day closing. I would love to do that he got up. But the scriptures do say that the resurrection of Jesus is supposed to change how we live. Go back to verse 1. It says, shall we keep on sinning, living in sin, in hopes that God's grace will cover me? Oh, God, you, you take care of this. You know, I'm saved, so there will be no consequences for me. I'm the apple of his eye, so if I just continue to make poor decisions and live ungodly, I don't have nothing to worry about. Paul says, by no means. He says, we have died to sin. How can we keep living in it? Verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, there's a mystery about baptism where it's not just going into some meaningless water. It's an identity change that's supposed to take place. He's saying that when Jesus died and was buried, when we are baptized in water, we are symbolizing that death and putting ourselves in union with Christ symbolically. So he says we are baptized into his death. Right? Look at what it says in verse 4. What's the whole point of this? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He says because of Christ's resurrection, he died and was raised up new in a glorified body. When we get saved, we're supposed to die to our old self and be raised up to live a new life. Not a perfect life, but a sanctified life. Jesus did not die and rise again for us to continue to live the lives that we're living. He died and rose so that we would live a life that reflects his. So what does that mean for us? If we say we know the Lord, we say by faith alone, right? Raise our hand if you believe we say by faith alone. It's our faith alone that saves us, right? But my Bible tells me that real faith is not alone. So we're saved by faith alone. But real faith is reflected by works. Actions do matter. We cannot keep going with this attitude, I'm saved so I could just do what I want. And it's not, no. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this. This wasn't planned, but I'm going to read it. Verse 9 says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, he's talking to Christians. He's writing this to a Christian church. And he's saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at what he says next. Such were some of you. 
past tense. Were. Not still are. This is what we're supposed to used to do. Not come to Christ and continue it. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the spirit of our God. God is gracious that he will carry us to the finish line if we keep our faith in him. But there was a lifestyle that he expects us to live. And if we do not live a way that reflects our faith, then we have to ask ourselves, do we have faith? And if we don't have faith, we will not see the Lord when we leave this life. Let's pray. Father, as we sang earlier, you are good. You are gracious. You're merciful. And you're patient and you're kind. Father, I thank you that you didn't leave it to our, to our own efforts and our own merits to grant us eternal life, but you said if we would bet it all on you and your sacrifice, your atonement, your cross, and your inevitable resurrection, that we would be saved if we would just repent and trust in you, we would be saved. There's no condition to it. There's no maybe. There's a guarantee. We will be saved if we repent and believe. And, Lord, we thank you. But, Lord, as your word says, the resurrection requires that we live in newness of life. We can't do that apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would sanctify us and empower us to live godly, to live holy, to love people, to treat people right to abstain from ungodliness, to abstain from habitual sin. These things are displeasing in your sight, and God, may you forgive us for our sins. Lord, we understand that your word says if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. We we understand that he who's taken a bath only needs to wash his feet. We understand that when we fall and we slip, you're not going to cast us out of your presence. and You welcome us back into right relationship with you. But, God, we want to live a pattern of righteousness, not a pattern of failure. Would you empower us by your grace and by your spirit to do that very thing? And we'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.